This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Glenn Feldman, who is the author of The Irony of the Solid South, Democrats, Republicans, and Race, 1865 to 1944. I hope that you enjoy this interview with Glenn. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today, as I mentioned, I have Glenn Feldman to talk about his book, The Irony of the Solid South, Democrats, Republicans, and Race, 1865 to 1944. Glenn, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Heath. Doing great. Glenn, yeah, this is a great book. Uh, before we get to it, um, maybe you could just tell us all a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you've been, uh, where this book fits into your larger research pursuit. So, who are you? Well, uh, I'm born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Kind of a diverse background, uh, not your typical southern deep south background. My, uh, father's a, uh, a Brooklyn Jew, so we have that kind of diverse, uh, influence. Uh, my mom is from South America, from Lima, uh, traces her roots to, uh, the north of Spain. Uh, but I've grown up in the south and I've lived in Birmingham <clears throat> the majority of my life with, uh, a couple of brief stints elsewhere, uh, New York for a while, uh, Tennessee for a while, Nashville for a while, but basically in, in, in the deep south. And, uh, the book has grown out of, uh, my interest with politics, American, Southern, otherwise, and, uh, issues of power, who holds power and why they hold power and what they do with that power over time. So, Glenn, you, you've written a provocative book here. Uh, in, in preparing to write this book, did you intend to provoke? Uh, well, let me give you an answer of, of yes and no. And um, I give you that answer with the full realization that it's a terrible answer. Um, and with the stipulation that... Uh, when I receive that answer from other people, I usually despise the answer. But in this case, it happens to fit. Um, let me start out with no first. Um, no, I didn't intentionally set out to write a provocative book. Um, I intended to engage in a search for the truth as uh, impossible as that sounds, and uh, and see where the facts and the evidence led me, um, with the realization that in a humanistic inquiry, I could never really arrive at the truth, the complete, absolute, unmitigated, perfect truth, but that I was going to try to get as closely as I could to it. Um, so that was the main goal. Now, the yes part is, Yes, I do realize that the book is provocative. The result of of the inquiry is provocative and will be quite provocative in the hands of some people. Um, but I, I hope that it's it's provocative in the best sense of that word in provoking or stimulating people to think about, rethink their own assumptions, biases, prejudices, and so forth. Actually, I found the evidence to be so overwhelming that there was really no need for me to, you know, embellish or go beyond what's what's in the record. So, um, I hope that answers the question. Uh, and and the, the deep and, and well sourced research, I think, is a testament to um, the 
the, the background you give and, and, and the, the argument you really develop as, as a researcher, not as simply a uh, stone thrower. So it, it, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a book that, that, um, that should be read by, by a lot of people, and not everyone is going to agree with your conclusions. Um, but you build such an interesting, interesting ar- uh, argument. Let's start start early in the book, and one of the concepts that I think sets up uh, your perspective and what, what you're trying to do is, so early in the book you refer to, quote, the reconstruction syndrome. I wonder if you can define and explain a little bit what that syndrome is and, and how it how it relates to, to uh, the book that you wrote. Right. The, uh, <clears throat> the reconstruction syndrome is uh, kind of a concept or idea I came up with a long time ago, really. Uh, I guess it appears in my work maybe a dozen years ago. And what I noticed about the South um, is that many of the things that occur today have occurred yesterday and the day before, and the year before, and the century before. And so I began to, uh, I began to look at Reconstruction as an experience that the South had that the rest of the country did not have. Of course, that's not a new idea. Uh, C. Van Woodward probably did the most important and provocative uh, work on that subject. But <clears throat> the Reconstruction Syndrome that I came up with, uh, the South today still carries the weight of that trauma. It's been, it's the only section of the country that has been defeated militarily and occupied militarily by a foreign force. Uh, there were only 22,000 troops, federal troops in 11 southern states, and that's not a lot. But the psychological trauma left, uh, the South <clears throat> with some enduring, um, emotional and psychological baggage. Uh, first of all, a very anti-black, uh, racist dedication to white supremacy, which has haunted the South for a long time. Secondly, very anti-federal view on things, anti-federal government, uh, an aversion to taxation, an aversion to funding public education as something that would be subversive, possibly, uh, especially when it came to race and the, uh, lower economic classes of whites, um, and aversion to outsiders, which pops up again, of course, with the civil rights, modern civil rights movement, and aversion to a suspicion, a hostility to anything related to the central or federal government. And so the South, I think, has been burdened by that syndrome. It tends to pop up, I believe, in times of acute stress. Um, so it's a concept that I use throughout the book and throughout my work. Yeah, and, you know, and, and one of the, the first reactions, I'm sure, um, those hearing about your description of, of, of this political community would be, would be that, but what about that example? What, what about this person who, who doesn't fit what you described? And you deal with that in the book. Uh, you, and you, you have an extended discussion of so the nature of scientific and historical inquiry. So you write, and, and I quote, Nuance is not a bad thing in and of itself. In fact, the search for nuance is praiseworthy. Uh, but that there are some risks to anecdotes, um, and, and not, not in quotes. Um, so I wonder what is the scholarly dilemma that you are concerned about, and, and why is it so important um, and, and so prominent in the subject matter you study to deal with this, this question of um, anecdote and generalization and, and trying to make sense of um, uh, this, this world from a, the perspective of a historian and as a, as a, of a social scientist? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and, and it, 
that question is there throughout the book. It's in the background, et cetera. And I think you hit it on the head. Uh, when a book is written, any book is written that deals with ideas and so forth, at the bottom of it, there's a, there's an attempt to search for the truth. What what really is the truth? What what happened? What does it mean? That sort of thing. Um, I recognize as an historian that the subject matter that I deal with, <clears throat> human beings, the past, uh, human nature, is not the same subject matter as uh, as someone dealing with physics or biology or chemistry deals with. Rocks, you know, don't have mortgages. Uh, plants don't have uh, children they need to send to college. So I'm dealing with human beings and that that makes things very different. Number one, I have to recognize that the only my own subject, my own biases, my own prejudices affect my choice of subject matter. They, they affect how I interpret data or information. Uh, but more than that, if you look at history, history becomes relatively useless. I think if it becomes you know excuse the phrase one damn thing after the other. If I just document one thing after the other with no context or, or no attempt to generalize, uh, then it's of limited value. The problem is what about the exceptions? What about the the rebels? What about the dissenters? What about the nonconformists who do not fit into the stereotype or even beyond the stereotype don't fit into the traditional or dominant narrative. What about them? What about their efforts? Weren't they noble? Weren't they praiseworthy? Weren't they worth something? And uh, the answer is yes, they were. But did they define the general pattern of what happened? And the answer, that, that, that is the critical question. And I think that historians, too often we get hung up on documenting the exceptional uh and in many respects, we are we are talking about the exception that proves the rule, especially when it comes to race, when it comes to politics, when it comes to the Southern past, when it comes to issues of whether or not the South is truly distinctive or exceptional as opposed to the rest of, of the nation. One of the things, um, and, and you cover uh, a, a long time period, again, 1865 to 1944, and we don't have enough time to talk about all of the, the details that, that you uh, work through in the book. One of the things that I was particularly interested in was the shift that you, you trace um, from the agitation directed primarily against African Americans to others, um, and, and that is Catholics, uh, Irish, Italians, and Jews. And I wonder if you talk, so when does this first occur, and, and is it associated with, with the same uh, political tactics and violence that we more generally know about that was directed against African Americans? Well, I think the the, uh, the easy answer is yes. Uh, it is related. Um, what's critical about all this is that um, is that uh, eventually African Americans will receive some protection from the federal government. So in a way, the, the, the kind of paranoia, the, the suspicion, the hostility towards the federal government by white Southerners is, is justified. There, there is reason to fear, uh, the federal government getting involved in Southern race relations. Once that happens though, with the Civil Rights Act of 64, with the Voting Rights Act of 65, uh, 
then it becomes very difficult to to race bait as openly as as had been the custom in the past. You don't have George Wallace standing on steps and at the inaugural saying segregation now, segregation forever. Uh, but but there is a kinship between uh, you know targeting the other, whether the other in the South is, is blacks, which is the obvious number one. Or it's Catholics, Jews, immigrants, uh, those perceived to be of questionable, uh, patriotism, um, those who don't reflexively get behind every military action that the United States decides it wants to engage in, uh, moral nonconformists, um, and others. So that there is that kinship, there is that, uh, that, that, that theme, and what happens in in the South is that uh, a lot of those people, so-called undesirables, become identified eventually with the modern Democratic Party, which takes under its umbrella, you know, women who uh, are feminists or uh, uh, people who believe in reproductive rights or uh, gays, homosexuals, or people that believe gays should have rights. Uh, People that question wars, um, any any manner of things, and so this becomes incredibly important for the history of the South, the politics of the South, and as the South becomes the bedrock of the National Republican Party, it becomes very important for the whole country. Yeah, let's let's get to your your central thesis, or the sort of the crux of the book, which is this dubious nature of the Solid South and and sort of the partisanship and and, and which party is in power and when. So. Um, and before we get to your argument, what's the conventional wisdom that you're out to overturn? Uh, you titled the book, The Irony of the Solid South. You're challenging a, uh, an existing notion about how solid the South was and for how long, and that is how solidly democratic uh, the South was. Um, what is that con- conventional wisdom that, you, that you're trying to confront? in building this case about this being ironic? Well, I think that the, the conventional wisdom is that the South was uh, almost completely solid from uh, Reconstruction to uh, the 1960s, um, and that there was tremendous democratic allegiance, which, which there was uh, in many, many, many respects. Uh, I also think that the nature of the New Deal and Southern liberalism uh, is, is challenged by the book, and and the basic story is that you know that Southern liberalism uh, was something very praiseworthy. Southern liberalism was was almost uh, flawless, and and what what I compare this to at one point, I believe maybe in this book or somewhere else, is that. When you're a person drowning in the ocean or somewhere, any piece of wood floating by that floats is wonderful. And so in the South, when you're surrounded by a sea of, of, of conservatism and beyond that, even reaction uh, and, and, and strong illiberalism, anything that floats by that is different, that in any way is the least bit moderately progressive, is, is grasped onto and held tightly dear for life by Southern liberals and later uh, is, is, is almost above or beyond reproach. And 
So I wanted to look a little bit at, at the actual, you know, real nature of Southern liberalism, how, how, how effective it really was. So if the conventional argument is that somewhere around 1964 or 1965, this, this great change happens, um, and your argument is that it's, that it's earlier, without putting on the spot and, and, and asking for a, a specific date when this happened, what's what's the what's the, the what's the year? What are the what are the, the the time period that you're arguing the the uh, uh, power and, and dominance of the Democratic Party in much of the South goes away? And and you're, much of the focus of the book is on is on the state of Alabama, but it's you know you're writing about other states as well. So when are we looking? When in when in this time period do you do you see that? The, the actual shift taking place? Well, I think that there are two answers to that. One is uh, 1933 uh, to 1935 when Franklin Roosevelt comes to power. I think that is critical, uh, especially after 1935. 1935 and, and after when black people are actually, for the first time really, included in government programs, government policies, uh, it's, it's not overt, it's not in your face, Roosevelt is timid, Roosevelt is reluctant, he's prodded along by Eleanor Roosevelt, Harold Ickes, and many others. But 1935 is critical. And uh, again, the next year, in 1936, you have black people voting for the first time for the Democratic Party. Now, that's an historic change. That's a watershed because prior to that, black people had been devoted to the party of Lincoln, or the Republican Party, and for good reason. So 1935 is critical, uh, and I look a lot at the 1930s. But beyond that, what's interesting, I think, is that these tendencies were always there, and I say always, at least from 1865 onward. Uh, the struggle in the South, um, you know, where you did have some independent and liberal, especially economically liberal challengers to the southern bourbons or the southern status quo, uh, was resolved in favor of the southern bourbons, southern conservatism, southern reaction. And so what you see happening in the 30s does have echoes that go back to the 1860s, the 1870s as well. So it's kind of a two-part answer. Uh, the first part is, is, is fairly obvious, 1935. It's, and, you know, and, and just before then, and you, you write about this in Chapter 4, the, the election, uh, or the, at least the campaign uh, of Al Smith uh, from New York. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what, what that campaign means and what it illustrates about sort of the, the politics of the South during that time period, the, the opposition to, to Al Smith's uh, uh, candidacy. Well, the, well, the 1928 election was incredibly important because the National Democratic Party, which had always been the bastion of, at least for white Southerners, uh, it had been the bastion for conservatism, white supremacy, etc. The National Party nominated a, uh, a New York Catholic uh, of immigrant background who was associated with Tammany Hall. And this was a tremendous shock to the South and split the South uh, apart. It split Alabama apart. It split the South apart. And, and uh, Re a Republican, Herbert Hoover, wound up taking some southern states and, and cracking the solid South. 
But more than that, it was a, a reflection of what was going on in the National Democratic Party. In 1924, uh, in New York, at the uh, National Convention, there were actually fist fights on the floor. There was pandemonium, practically a riot, when there was an anti-Klan plank introduced to be part of the national platform. And so what you have in the National Democratic Party is a struggle between uh, a white, rural, Protestant, dry, as in anti-prohibition, pro, uh, wing versus an urban, immigrant, wet, northeastern uh, wing. And, and this, this it cannot be held together. This, this coalition cannot be held together. So in 1928, it does crash. Alabama comes within a hair, a hair of going Republican, uh, largely thanks to the, to the work of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama. Uh, and there are many people who speculate that the, that the state really did vote for Herbert Hoover, and there was simply uh, shenanigans in the Black Belt, which was famous for electoral fraud that, that swung the, the state to the Democratic column. So the 28 election is is massively important, too, and that's why I kind of referenced, you know, although we can pinpoint 1935, we have to look back to what was going on further. But I think that one of the major lessons that came out of 1928 is this, and that is white people in the South realized that if they could ever patch up their differences, uh, between the, the various classes of white people, between the elites and, and plain white people, if those differences could ever be patched up, uh, then the partisan beneficiary of that would be impregnable uh, and and unassailable in the South. And that's, that's basically what happens. You write this about, you know, a long period of, uh, of history, but you also, throughout the book, you, you bring this up to today, and, and you talk in the book a number of times about the Tea Party. So, in the interest of time, let me just sort of end here and, and, and ask you to uh, talk a little bit about um, how you associate um, politics today in the South and the advent of the Tea Party and, and where it fits into this historical narrative that you write about the late 1800s and, and early 1900s. What, what, how do the... Um, how does this current movement fit into? Is it is it a is it a likely uh, outgrowth of that time period that you study? Is it unlikely? What is it, what does it share in common? What, how do you make sense of the, the Tea Party? Uh, unfortunately, I, 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 it's not a big surprise to me. Uh, I, I do think that the Tea Party is uh, intellectually and ideologically connected to some of the more uh, unfortunate manifestations of politics in the South. I realize that the Tea Party is a nationwide phenomenon, um, but I do believe that the Southern model is incredibly important for what has become the the right wing of the Republican Party today and, and, and the right wing in general. And um, the Tea Party, in many unfortunate respects, bears a lot of resemblance to uh, the Dixie Crafts of, of 1948, uh, to Klan movements beforehand, to what Richard Hofstetter called the paranoid style in in American politics uh, that's had a very, very long career. So the, the Tea Party really, I think, to George Wallace, you know, I think that the Tea Party has a, a it didn't come out of out of nowhere. It's uh, it's angry. It's resentful. It's uh 
it hates taxes, and I think right under the uh, the surface of it, there's a there's a there's a real uh, emotional um, dislike for uh, the takers, uh, those who aren't producers. All the Ann Randian rhetoric that uh, that comes out of libertarianism, and so no, it's not really a surprise to me. It's uh, it's a rather unfortunate, I think, uh, outgrowth of, of the past. Yeah. Yeah. As I mentioned at the start, I, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's, um, a very interesting history and I think the, the political science portions of this also are, are just, um, are, are very interesting. What, what's up next for you? Uh, do you have a, a new book project, uh, an upcoming project that is tied to this or, uh, a new book project? or other related research that is that is different from this. What, what can we expect from you next? Well, uh, I guess the answer is both. Uh, this was uh, really the first half of uh, a two-part project, so I'm hoping to finish the second half and, and bring the story up to uh, at least the, uh, the middle of the 1950s. Uh, on the second, second hand, I'm working on... Uh, the question of money, history, and capitalism, and... Uh, Capitalism in all its, its forms and, and, uh, the effect that that's had on history nationwide. So that will be more of a national, uh, project. And, and third, thirdly, uh, I'm working on something, uh, related to, uh, national conservatism or what happened to national conservatism, uh, after the 1950s to push it further and further in the direction of, of really what's, uh, I think today, uh, something that cannot really be called conservative anymore. It has to be called uh, a radical or extremist movement. Well, yeah, well, I look forward to what, what comes next because I, I enjoyed your, your current book, uh, The Irony of the Solid South, Democrats, Republicans, and Race, 1865 to 1944, published this year from University of Alabama Press, widely available. Glenn, I really thank you for the book, and I also thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Keith. It's my pleasure.